This is Unfilter, episode 337 for November 11th, 2020. President Trump has made it very clear he is not planning to concede defeat in this election. Instead, he continues to spread false and baseless claims that the results are somehow rigged against him. And the Trump campaign says starting tomorrow, they will start prosecuting their case in court. All of it, a dangerous attempt to undermine the most sacred part of our democracy, the vote. Hello, friends, and welcome in. Let me say right off the top, I'm recording on Wednesday the 11th. Happy Veterans Day, and thank you to all of those who have served. I know I have some vets in the audience who reach out to me from time to time. And also, in my experience, some of the best people that I've met, some of the best people I know in my life are vets. So thank you very much from the bottom of the Unfilter Show's heart for your service. Now, Here we are on November 11th, 2020, and I just can't help but kind of laugh. I mean, you thought the election was going to be over, didn't you? No, I know you didn't. No, we knew this was coming, and here's where we are right now. Uh, As you likely know if you're listening live, but if you're listening in the future, AP and the news networks have projected Joe Biden as the winner of the election. Trump and his campaign are filing lawsuits and alleging that there's been fraud which uh, I have links in the show notes to all of the lawsuits that are known right now that the Trump campaign has filed, if you are curious, and I'll be speaking more on that later. Trump has gone all but radio silent, strangely silent, a few tweets. That's about it. It's like a switch was flipped, too. Britain's Johnson, France's Marcon, and Germany's Merkel have all congratulated Biden. Just boom, all of a sudden, everybody's calling him. The Democrats have exploded into a civil war where the progressives and the centrists are blaming each other for the House losses. Link in the show notes. And I'm just sitting here literally popping popcorn and watching it all. (laughs) So let's get to the week so far. Uh, I'd say some of Trump's base aren't taking the results so good. The media said what? <laughs> the media said Joe Biden's president. Ha 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 That's your good buddy, Kenneth Copeland, who also blew COVID away in April. Not taking it so well. But uh, Biden and his team seem to be getting on to work, and the media couldn't be happier about it. Well, good evening once again. Day 1390 of the Trump administration. 72 days until Inauguration Day. Tonight, the president still refusing to concede the election as President-elect Joe Biden moves ahead with his transition and a plan to fight the pandemic. He just can't do so officially yet. So the president-elect has set up a president-elect office and they are preparing for the transition. The problem is there's really been no transition so far from the Trump team. And you see... This could result in doom, according to CBS. 
Well, it goes against our history. It goes against good governance. And the longer it goes, the deeper it will create divisions in this country about what actually happened in this election. This is uh, CBS News' chief Washington correspondent, Major Garrett. And the president and the Republicans who stand with him will have to bear the responsibility for whatever comes from that. I don't know what that's going to be, but this is not in concert with the way we approach governance in this country. It simply isn't. Everyone knows, all rational Republicans know, these lawsuits are essentially hearsay, meaningless, and distractions, period. That's all they are. Well, then what's the problem with letting them play out? They are delaying the inevitable. Every sensible Republican on Capitol Hill knows that in his or her heart of hearts. And their mute testament and loyalty to the president will only serve to encourage him to resist what is inevitable, the transition of power. And history will judge them harshly. But I will quote Churchill in this one sense about oh he's getting he's getting real prophetic now about this entire situation we find ourselves in. You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. <laughs> really? So apparently the nation's head is in Trump's mouth, and you see it's it's dangerous. It is really dangerous, and you need to be really freaked out about it, guys. So um, just quick gut check: if you are not presently freaking out. Well, then I don't know what's wrong with you. And if you're freaking out right now, you need to freak out a little bit more because NBC and CBS are claiming that Trump's delays, well, they could cause another 9-11. In 2000, the legal fight over less than 600 votes in a single state, Florida, delayed the transition between the Clinton and Bush administrations by 37 days. The 9-11 commission that examined the 2001 terror attacks found that loss of time slowed the Bush team from identifying, recruiting, clearing, and obtaining confirmation for key appointees. The commission recommending that future presidents-elect be provided as soon as possible with detailed summaries of national security threats. On the national security piece of this, you know, we just saw in Peter's report that the 9-11 Commission actually said when Democrats slowed the transition to George W. Bush's administration back in 2000, that that had an effect on what happened in in their preparedness for 9-11. Now, of course, the situation is is totally reversed. Are Republicans worried about the, the national security implications? of delaying all of this. People feel calmed by the way Joe Biden handled it, but there's a lot of concern about the real world national security implications. And you are starting to see that come out a little bit in public, even from Republicans. I want to remind people about the stakes here. That was NBC. This is now CBS. This is both their morning programs. Uh, The 2000 election had a delayed transition to December 13th, and the 9-11 Commission actually identified that delayed and shortened transition as contributing to the lack of preparedness on 9-11, worst terror attack in U.S. history. So this re- Just in case you forgot. really matters. It really matters. Just in case you forgot. 9-11 Commission, 9-11 Commission, 9-11 Commission. <laughs> well, you know your boy's going to hook you up. So I went back to March 23rd, 2004. And I got the commission's recommendation on audio. So you can judge for yourself how serious of a recommendation this is. Because what I read from this is essentially the Bush administration used every excuse possible to get out of fault for 9-11. And one of them, one of the many, one of the litany of excuses that Bush and Cheney and team used was that, well, the Clintons made the transition real rough, so... Um, that meant that when something happened in September, we weren't prepared for it. 
it appears from what we have heard that the uh, administration officials uh, uh, leaving government and the Clinton administration. This is Democrat Richard Ben Vetsi. Were willing officials uh, uh, leaving government and the Clinton administration were willing to be generous with their time, but they didn't always connect up with the right people, it seems. You know, it was dire. They made themselves available, um, but they just didn't get the right people at the right time, is essentially what he's saying. And because I've interrupted, I'm going to play it from the beginning. This is important. It appears from what we have heard that the uh, administration officials uh, leaving government and the Clinton administration were willing to be generous with their time, but they didn't always connect up with the right people, it seems. And uh, I think we ought to have a recommendation with respect to uh, institutionalizing transition in, uh, in these times, which require immediate response to uh, issues. Yeah, so he thinks there ought to be a recommendation. So this is what this is what then became codified in the 9/11 Commission report. So while the media is screaming about a new 9/11 because of a lack of cooperation in the transition, despite the fact that Joe Biden has been out there saying it's no big deal, Joe Biden in a press conference when asked said we're going to transition just fine. None of this is going to be a problem. <laughs> that didn't slow them down though. Because then to really kind of just throw a match on this thing, Trump fired his defense secretary, Mark Esper. The transition turbulent already with President Trump announcing via tweet Defense Secretary Mark Esper has been terminated. The president this summer him mocking him as Yesper. Okay. Some people call him Yesper. No, I get along with him. I get along with him fine. He's fine. Yeah, no problem. I consider firing everybody. <laughs> oh, that's such a great answer. What what is what is so what is so fantastic about this story is is the media has positioned Esper as a yes man, um, com- propelled by that little exchange. Um, but they've written about another context as well. What Esper has done to get fired by Trump is not withdraw from Afghanistan fast enough. So you understand what the issue is here is Trump wanted an Afghan uh, Afghanistan spin down and Esper is dragging his feet as long as possible. So Trump fired him. That's what their core conflict is. But the media manages to play it off completely differently. But that's neither here nor there. I just want you to understand the context of why one of the reasons why this guy was fired. He was an all in establishment after he was fired. Mitch McConnell went to the floor and praised him for about eight minutes because he was such an institutional establishment lackey. So it's not like this guy is some great defense secretary. When the president, the commander in chief, ordered a troop spin down, he made it take as long as possible. Counterterrorism head Christopher Miller will take over as Esper, in a newly released interview, defends himself as more than a yes man, telling the Military Times, who's pushed back more than anybody? It comes as President Trump, again out of the public eye, rejects the reality of the election outcome online, repeating baseless claims about the vote count, despite no evidence of widespread fraud. This is known as a whipsaw here. We have no relation to the two stories. We're talking about Mark Esper. We start to get in on the conflict of the two, and then there's a hard jump. So right as we start to get to the yes man thing, there's a hard cut to a new topic. And if you're thinking about this, when you're watching this, you're seeing these visuals on the... I know this... I I don't mean to sound like I'm talking down to you. This is just something I've noticed doing this show. I I cut these clips, and sometimes the first... Almost every time. 
almost every time with the exception of maybe like NPR and some radio broadcasts. The first time I get these clips, I get them as video. Then I cut them down. I get the, I get the bit that we need because they're often way too long. I get the bit we need for the show, and that's generally an audio. And I, I tell you, man, if, if I don't hear something the second the, – like the something else, if I don't hear something different when I listen to just the audio and I use my more of my brain to comprehend what they're saying. And so when they do this, when they have the visuals, they have the constantly moving B-roll, part of that is consuming your brain CPU. Then when they do the hard whipsaw to a new topic, you never really get a chance to think critically about what was just said to you. Your brain receives it. But there's never an opportunity for you to process it. That's kind of what we do here on the show, right, is I take you through these clips and we process what they're doing to you. So just so you kind of see what I'm talking about, I want to play it back for you a little bit. Take over as Esper in a newly released interview defends himself as more than a yes man, telling the Military Times who's pushed back more than anybody. It comes as President Trump, again out of the public eye, rejects the reality of the election outcome online. See there, wouldn't wouldn't you actually rather know... What, what do you mean who's pushed back more than anybody? Pushed back on what? Wouldn't you like to know what that is? But you don't, you don't really get the opportunity to consider it when they do this style of a whipsaw. Counterterrorism head Christopher Miller will take over as Esper, in a newly released interview, defends himself as more than a yes man, telling the Military Times who's pushed back more than anybody. It comes as President Trump, again out of the public eye, rejects the reality of the election outcome online, repeating baseless claims about the vote count despite no evidence of widespread fraud. Senator Mitch McConnell today defending the president's decision not to concede. And President Trump is 100% within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options. Only four GOP senators have acknowledged President-elect Biden, including Utah's Mitt Romney. At this stage, uh, I think we get behind the uh, the new president. But Funny how it's always Romney, huh? Isn't that funny? Behind the scenes, multiple allies and advisors tell NBC News pressure is building on the president to accept his defeat. People close to him worried he's spiraling, hurting his own legacy as well as the GOP's. His lawsuits in election battlegrounds seen by some as a way to brand the president as something other than a loser, in the words of one source. And even conservative Fox News today cut away from the press secretary's inflammatory news conference about the legal push. This has really been interesting and something I've been meaning to talk to you about. What we have seen and and why there is now room for an organization like Newsmax or even a Trump media empire is Fox News is really an establishment outlet, but they are right to the establishment. See, we often talk about it like centrist and left and right, but think about it more like the center is business and establishment, big money interest. That's the center. And those are all the big industries that we talk about in special interests. And then you have a right and left to these generally kind of in the middle, just greedy groups. And Fox is to the right, but not not really that far to the right. So there's actually quite a bit of room left on the right. And you see the likes of Ben Shapiro and The Blaze take that up. And now you're seeing Newsmax take that up. MSNBC was trying to go further to the left, as far as to the left of the establishment as they can without being anti-establishment. But the reality is to truly go far to the left – you have to go more like your Jimmy Dore, right? Because I, I, and the Young Turks are in that spectrum too. But I'd say farther out is Jimmy, somebody like Jimmy Dore on YouTube, who is a progressive but extremely critical of the left. And so you have this kind of spectrum here of of coverage, and the and the 
the issue is is that kind of holding up Fox is like, well, if the if this is the president's network, if Fox says it, now Fox has always been in with the establishment, and for a while Trump was the establishment by definition. He was the president of the United States. By definition, he's the head boss. He's the establishment. But now, now that now that they've called it for Biden, you see where their loyalties lie. Source and even conservative Fox News today cut away from the press secretary's inflammatory news conference about the legal push. Unless she has more details to back that up, I can't in good countenance continue showing you this. Now, the man leading that legal fight has tested positive for COVID, according to people familiar with David Bossie's diagnosis, noting he's sidelined. He was seen in the East Room on election night, no mask, along with Housing Secretary Ben Carson, who's also been infected. Still, some of the president's supporters want him to fight on. We need maybe more people in the United States like President Trump that they're going to stand up for their rights and not be pushed around. And late tonight, Attorney General Bill Barr is telling federal prosecutors if they find substantial allegations of voting irregularities, they should investigate those. But Lester, that is despite no evidence of widespread fraud this election. I got to get that in there every single time. You got to get that in there. So you have there's so you have there's a lot in that clip. But I want I want to go back to firing Mark Esper here because this is being framed as the beginning of a coup. See, this is Trump taking out people and, in, and installing loyalists, even though before they, they said he was a yes man, which by definition is a loyalist. It's, it's ironic and pathetic how quickly they can switch narratives. But you see, there's a reason why you should be worried about the new guy that Trump has been put in, this loyalist. And there is reason to be alarmed when the president starts firing key people and installing loyalists in top positions, as he is doing at the Pentagon. I want you to meet the Pentagon's new acting top policy official, retired Brigadier General Anthony Tata. His nomination to this position failed after CNN's K-File reported on past Islamophobic and other offensive comments he'd made. Lawmakers from both parties have opposed his placement in this very role. Tata called Islam, quote, the most oppressive, violent religion. He called President Obama a, quote, Muslim Manchurian candidate, also a terrorist leader. He called Speaker Pelosi and Congresswoman Maxine Waters violent extremists. <laughs> well, I might agree with him on that one. <laughs> CNN really wants you to hate this guy. You see, he's put this loyalist in there. And the thing is, if that isn't scary enough, well, then you're not going to believe what happens next. This is not a serious or even stable individual, but the president just installed him in this key policy role anyway, and now Tata's in a top spot for the next two months. And it's not just the Pentagon. For two months. <laughs> for two months, right? But if, if Tata's being in the Pentagon doesn't scare you enough, she really wants to drive the point home. Anyway, and now Tata's in a top spot for the next two months. And it's not just the Pentagon. At the State Department, this comes from the Secretary of State. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Oh, no, he isn't accepting reality. Oh, no, Mike Pompeo is planning a coup. A coup. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Pompeo tried to clean that up later on the president's favorite cable channel. And uh, uh, maybe she needs to catch up. I know cable news industry isn't her business, but uh, Fox hates Fox and Trump hate each other now. And just in case you didn't get it, after she plays the Fox clip, she really tries to drive the point home. But this is America's top diplomat, the person charged with selling democracy to the world who is pouring baseless doubt 
all over America's Democratic election. Pouring baseless doubt. So here's what Pompeo really said. He made a bad joke and the media went full coop and just cut it. Is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security? There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready. The, the world is watching what's taking place here. We're oh, wait a minute. This is the part they cut off. So he makes the really bad joke. He does the half laugh. And then listen to what he actually says. will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready. The, the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors selected. There's a process. The Constitution lays it out pretty clearly. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary to make sure that the State Department is functional today, successful today, and successful with the president who's in office on January 20th, a minute afternoon, will also be successful. You see what happens here? They took a bad joke out of context. They cut his explanation, and then they used it to hype you up, to, ru- to rev you up, to, to get views. They did it to get views because Trump is still their moneymaker. Even with Biden elected, Trump is their moneymaker. And they could be doing a deep dive into the scummy people that Joe Biden appears to be assembling around him in his cabinet. I mean, if the media was truly the fourth estate, wouldn't they be giving the American people all of the information on Biden and his team? Instead, they just play his press conferences and then lavish him with praise and then go back to talking about Trump planning a coup. Let's be real here. I mean, let's seriously, let's seriously be real. What's going on is a uh, it's a legal process. And and I didn't know this until I looked it up. I was curious. There is actually no legal requirement for a president to make a concession. Now, that's I don't think ever been done from what I could tell in my research. It's there's always been a concession. And the 9-11 Commission report does say a smoother transition is better for national security. And that seems pretty obvious. But I'm going to tell you this. Man, I dug into some of this stuff. And I have links in the show notes. So everything I'm saying here is totally cited in the show notes. Uh, Some of this looks legitimate. There is some people who have come out and they have, you know, with legal repercussions, have testified that they've seen shenanigans. There's one individual who came out and and said they saw shenanigans and now has recounted it and said, no, no, I was just lying. So that's kind of been, un- that's undercut some of this. But it seems like there's enough there, enough there to push this thing along for at least a month. I mean, I'd, I'd honestly be surprised if this wraps up much before December at this point. So... This is only going to get worse. They're only going to hype this up. And it seems like, you know, even though there is there is some some legal uh, things in process, there is what appear to be quite legitimate issues. When you really dig into a lot of it and you look at what actually has been filed in court. I got to tell you guys, some of this is only like a 10 ballot difference. Right. And then in some cases, it's a lot more. It's like a 10,000 ballot difference. But when I go through that, 
article that I have linked in the show notes, I, it doesn't really add up to changing the election. Even now, it, there could be a lot more if the, if if this is all true. There could be a lot more. But what they are representing in court so far, which is all that's going to matter at the end of the day, doesn't appear to be enough to really change the game. So, like a switch went off, the world leaders just all started congratulating Biden, like it like it was done, like Trump's gone. Leaders from around the world are congratulating President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris on their big win. But there are exceptions. Leaders from Mexico and Brazil have remained silent so far. And this morning, the Kremlin said Russian President Vladimir Putin is waiting for official results before commenting. He says that Mr. Putin or Mr. Putin rather says he is ready to work with any U.S. leader. Holly Williams now reports the uh, I think it's what the deadline is December 8th for it to be certified, if I recall. Uh, and like I've said for, before on the show, Trump, I think, has been a really fascinating pres- presidency to watch because in my lifetime, there's never been another president that hasn't started a war. And so watching how he's handled that, even though he came to the line very, very close a couple of times, um, that has really been an interesting and fascinating kind of example of success. But it's not clear to me how much is is a result of Trump and his team or or how much of his success has been a result of inertia, like with the economy and the military. It seems to me some of it's been changing of regulation and key things like they've been very successful in that area, but other successes haven't really been easy for them. And something I've kind of touched on before is it kind of seems like the team around Trump, like his family, have really been incompetent. And if they were a super savvy political family, if they if they were a well-oiled political machine, which, by the way, probably would have meant he wouldn't have gotten elected. But if they were a well-oiled political machine, I think they would have been better at combating a lot of this. Instead, Trump has been inclined to work with these celebrities that he sees on television like Bolton, which who, who was a horrible hire, an obvious bad hire at the time, and Rudy Giuliani who, I mean, he apparently just seems to hire from Fox News. And it's it's blatantly obvious because he ends up with a team around him that's either family members or empty television pundits. And, and they often resulted in just raw incompetence. When you look at some of the legal, legal cases that the Trump administration lost, a lot of times, well, not a lot, but I think a fair way to say it is a notable amount of times it was clerical errors and basic mistakes that that caused them to lose. It's embarrassing. And it just kind of creates this this environment of incompetence and his success his successes have kind of been despite this incompetence. And you you may have seen the or heard of this entire mix up with Rudy and his team where they announced a press conference at the four seasons. And so the press corps start showing up at the Four Seasons, and then they had to tweet that they that they got that they accidentally booked it at the Four Seasons. I think it's like a yard uh, maintenance. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on it, but yeah, it was uh, kind of a rundown uh, yard supply store, and they kind of quickly papered up some Trump signs on the on the store's loading bay door, and held a press conference there. And it's just it's embarrassing because they don't decide the election. The call for Joe Biden isn't. Is it, who was it called by? 
This is Rudy Giuliani outside the yard supply store, Four Seasons Yard Supply Store, which that's <laughs> just it's so it's so like it's just an, it's a, you could see how you can make the mistake. You look it up on Google Maps. Oh yeah, Four Seasons, okay, and you accidentally just selected the wrong one. You send out the address, but it's just such a also at the same time basic pathetic mistake, and it sort of it created this visual. That the Trump team, they should have just canceled the event because it created this visual of the Trump team in front of this rundown yard supply building with an adult store, like an adult sex store or bookstore, whatever the hell it was, next door. All right, so imagine these optics. And then you got Rudy up there acting like a fool. All the, oh my goodness, all the networks. Wow. All the networks. We have to forget about the law. Judges don't count. All the networks, all the networks. All the networks thought Biden was going to win by 10%. Gee, what happened? Come on. Don't be, don't be ridiculous. Now- Come on, man. Come on, man. Don't be ridiculous. And while some information that comes public does seem damning, other information just kind of makes the whole thing seem like cartoonish, like something we saw in the 80s. The Trump campaign has submitted explosive evidence of voter fraud to the DOJ in the form of a sworn affidavit from a poll worker in Clark County, Nevada. Now, that poll worker joins me now exclusively with the shocking details. Now, we're going to be concealing her identity, even disguising her voice over her own safety concerns. Uh, Thank you for joining us. You saw something suspicious, we're going to get right into it tonight, happening on the side of a Biden-Harris van in the parking lot of the polling station. Now, walk the audience through what happened. I went out to go for a walk on my break, and I probably had a a 150, 175-foot stretch where I was walking. The, The Biden van was parked along this stretch. Nobody is going to take this seriously. And I was walking to it, so about 150 feet, I was walking and I could see these people hand over what appeared to be white envelopes, just hand over onto this table. And as I got closer, the envelopes were being torn open. There were two men or two people dropping the envelopes and two people ripping them open and turning and facing the van and drawing on them or marking them. And as I got closer, you know, as I was walking, they would put things down and pick more paper up and mark on the van and then put it down and pick some more up. And as I got closer, I thought, those are ballots. And I didn't, you know, I was in my polling um, uniform, basically. And as I walked by, I looked and I thought, those are ballots. And I, it kind of was an odd, like, what are they doing? There were four total people, but only two were marking and opening the envelopes and the paper. And as it took about a six minute walk to walk this parking lot and I did it, I just walked my entire lunch hour. And so I came around a second time and they're still opening and marking the ballots. You know, it's funny because anybody who works with this lady would obviously know who it is, especially since she just gave away that detail of walking the parking lot at her lunches. (laughs) So the, the voice disguise does nothing but make this seem less credible. Um, now her testimony is, it's a signed affidavit. What her testimony is, is that on this walk, 
she saw them literally filling out the ballots on the side of a van that was labeled Biden-Harris. Now, it's, it's, I guess it's possible. I don't want to call this lady a liar. I mean, she obviously saw something, I guess. But who the, who the hell's going to try to steal this election with a labeled, like, van? Like, do you think, like, the campaign just sent out vans with people to, to fill out ballots? And they just, like, were they wearing their uniforms with their logo on it, too? I mean, could they be any more blatant? It just seems it seems comically blatant if it's true, and it, it seems hard to believe. But it, you know, you're talking how many ballots there? Unless it's like thirty thousand, it's probably not going to make much of a difference. But make no mistake about it, we are in for a long haul. Uh, Georgia has announced their Secretary of State has announced a full ha- full hand recount, and he says it. I don't know, like he's super proud of it. With the margin being so close. It will require a full, by-hand recount in each county. This will help build confidence. It will be an audit, a recount, and a recanvas all at once. It will be a heavy lift, but we will work with the counties to get this done in time for our state certification. Now, the uh, folks on the right are actually uh, pretty excited about this development because Georgia is one of the areas where there was a weird discrepancy. The Trump ballots sort of were all up and down the same, all right for the Senate, you know, for the House. Every it was it was an up and down vote for the Trump ballots. And the only difference was and I don't know the exact numbers, but you can look it up. The only difference was about 900 ballots where somebody voted for Trump, but then voted for a Democrat lower down. There was only like 980 ish, 920 ish ballots where there was that kind of difference. On the Biden side, there was a massive discrepancy where folks voted for Biden and then voted differently down ballot. And it was something like a 25,000 discrepancy, which is just unusual. It's not really ever been seen before. It doesn't mean anything happened, but it is unusual. And so there's folks on the right who think that if they recount in that area, they're going to discover, discover a lot of those all for Biden ballots that came in are phony. Uh, there's also been some. I'd say about a dozen reports of uh, people who are dead for maybe even a couple of years. Like in one case, an individual was dead in the 80s. Another individual was dead in 2017, but they still voted. <laughs> I can't make this up. I think I have a link in the show notes, uh, but you can you can totally Google this too. Uh, in one circumstance, there's an individual who claims that their guide dog voted. That somehow their guide, I don't, I don't, I didn't bother going too far. I guess it would have made for a, a good laugh. But uh, so there's questions to be had that will at least take a month or so. And that's considering, that's actually pretty fast if you think about how the legal system works to work out. Um, and then I think it's around December 8th that the election is actually certified. And at that point, there's nothing Trump can do. But what he'll have done is build a good case that explains to his base how a winner lost. And that's really what this is about. The winner can't lose. Trump can't be labeled a loser. And there's nothing harder than losing a presidential election. I mean, that is talk about talk about how embarrassing that must be for a guy like Trump. How devastating. So what this does is it, it will uncover legitimate shenanigans. But it won't be enough shenanigans to change the outcome. I mean, the world leaders are all in. The world government has decided, right? And the people who really run the show have decided that it's Biden. 
but it will give Trump a go-to explanation for his base. It will give fodder for the right, and it will empower whatever he does next. And it'll probably propel him into being a consistent thorn in the side of the Biden administration and leave him positioned to run in 2024 if he wants. Because he can the entire time claim it was stolen from him. They'll have these, these examples that they'll be able to vaguely cite. They just have to not completely embarrass themselves in the meantime. And what will happen, because the media wants to ramp this up as much as they can because attention equals revenue, they are going to try to turn this into it's a coup. It's the end of our democracy. When in reality what is happening is Donald Trump and his team are pursuing their legal options. They are not the first to do this, and it is totally within their power to do so. And it's probably just part of the process to get him out. And if there's nothing to really be that worried about, why not let him play it out? Why not just let it happen? Joe Biden himself has said this isn't going to make a difference for him and his team. They've got an office set up. They're ready to go. So I, 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 think, I think what we'll have is a fracturing. You'll ha- this, they'll just, this, instead of people unifying, all the talk about unifying, the perspectives on this are going to just widen people's divide. And each, each camp will just, well, this will just be one of the other things that they go on about now. And that's why woke Democrats, especially those in positions of power who worked with Trump during COVID or any other situation, like some of the governors, they've got to distance themselves from Trump like no other. Here's uh, your good buddy, Governor Andrew Kuman. I needed him to help New York. That was my job. If I wasn't governor of New York, I would have decked him, uh, period. I mean, he was attacking me. He was attacking my family. He was uh, anti-Italian. He was uh, every nasty thing. You know, you, if I take away that word governor for 24 hours, I would have had a field day with him. Uh Uh I can't even believe that's okay to say. That was on Howard Stern's Sirius XM radio program. But he's got to distance himself now because uh, they're taking names. And in a glaring example of how in the media will be for the Biden campaign and the Biden administration, and something I have been warning you about for several episodes, this is massive. It's pretty much been totally silent. I don't know if there's been any reporting on this, but regular MSNBC contributor John McCam, I'm not even sure how you say this guy's last name. He's one of these guys who really fancies himself as as an intellect. And uh, he's he's a longtime MSNBC contributor and Biden has been going out and giving these speeches. And I've been I've been noting, hey, don't you think Biden's trying to hit a presidential tone here? They obviously have a strategy. Well, it turns out corrupt in bed with the with the Biden administration, MSNBC has been having the very man writing Joe Biden's speeches come on and then praise them and talk about how great they are. I want to I want to make sure I'm clear on this. This John Mecham is in part largely responsible for writing Joe Biden's recent press conference speeches. And then the bastards at MSNBC have him on to review the speech, to talk about how Biden did and what Biden is messaging. And they've been caught. They've had they've actually since the story came out, there's actually been turns out several other people 
who contribute to MSNBC also working with the Biden campaign and administration. All of this during the election. It's been going on for a while now. And here is one of the examples I got for you of the author of Biden's speech reviewing Biden's speech on MSNBC with Bri Y. John, to my initial point, I am not the historian you are, and I certainly don't have the Pulitzer on my shelf that you do. Do you concur that that is the way we are used to hearing from our presidents? Absolutely. Uh, tonight marks the entire election results. Mark, a renewal of an American conversation where we're struggling imperfectly to realize the full implications of the Jeffersonian promise of equality that has taken us too long. Our, our work has been uh, bloody and tragic and painful and difficult, and Lord knows it is unfinished. But at our best, we try. And at our best, we are uh, vice president, sorry, the president-elect, I've got to get used to that. The president-elect uh, quoted Martin Luther King tonight, who quoted Theodore Parker, a 19th century abolitionist, talking about the arc of a moral universe being long, but it bends toward justice. It only bends if there are people like John Lewis and people like Jim Clyburn and people like the suffragists and people like the abolitionists who insist that it swerve. Now, keep in mind, this corrupt son of a bitch is getting paid by both the Biden campaign and MSNBC at the same time to write and review his own speech. And they knew. They knew. Because once it became public, they fired a bunch of other people. Well, a handful of other people. That's the dialectic of history. And what's unfolding now is the resumption of a conversation about who we are, and who we want to be. Are you getting it? Are you getting the message? Do you get it? We're back. It's America's back. A conversation about who we are and who we want to be. That's what the that's ultimately what the Biden campaign is trying to message. <laughs> and now he's off the air. That guy's off the air. And he goes it goes on for another few more minutes. And you can tell he he's one of these guys, one of these writers who feels like this speech could the only way his speeches would be better if it was him delivering it instead of somebody else. He just goes on and on in in a in a in like a fugue of self of self love and and it's really obnoxious. So I decided not to play it for you because instead we should move on and talk about COVID. There's more things going on than just the fake coup. And uh I talked recently about how bad it is around the world. Well unfortunately things aren't going so great here in the US either. We're going to begin with the dramatic worsening, though, in the coronavirus crisis. As many families make plans for this upcoming holiday season, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. Officials reported a record 136,000 new cases just yesterday. Every day over the past eight days, the number of daily cases has exceeded 100,000. The crisis is plain to see in most of the U.S., forcing governors to announce new restrictions. More Americans are in the hospital with COVID-19 this morning than at any other point in this pandemic. But there is good news. The government's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, is giving a new timeline for a possible release of a vaccine. Now, before we get to the vaccine, I do want to mention the lockdowns. There seems to be a new rolling out of lockdowns. And I, I struggle to understand the logic. And I'm sure there is some. I'm not saying there isn't logic here. But if the lockdowns worked, 
would we be in this situation? To your, I'm sure your counter is that, well, we didn't do it properly. Well, are we going to do it properly this time? You know, if you've been listening for a while, you know I've, I've had family severely affected by uh, the lockdowns, and I, I've heard from so many people who have been severely affected, and I worry that we will, we will cause an irreversible blow to small businesses because at least how we do it around here and everywhere I traveled during COVID in the RV, uh, big businesses, your Walmarts, your super stores, and your fast food restaurants stay open, but the mom and pop shops have to shut down. And they just can't survive this. And, and then letting them reopen and then shut them down again, is it feels like it's going to be a death blow. And the reason why I think it matters, because yes, I hear you. I know what you're thinking right now. Um, I get that it's more than just money and or lives. To me, to me it, it's it's about families. And when you take out a small business, you're taking out, a family because it often supports multiple members of the family. I mean, a lot of, at least in the case of the family businesses, in our case, you know, several employees of the business were family members and that has so many knock on effects to their life. So I worry that there's so many ramifications that can't be undone. Um, and when you combine that with so far, the lockdowns have not been effective here. And then ultimately you look at the amount of cases and infections. And when you see the numbers that we're seeing today, I think it suggests an exhaustion. I think it suggests a shift in the risk tolerance of the nation. Not everyone. Um, I know people who are still taking it very safe. I know for a lot of people, Thanksgiving and Christmas isn't going to be the same this year. But for I think a lot of people, if you just go by the numbers... I think their risk tolerance is shifting, and I think their I think COVID exhaustion is real, and I think that's why we're starting to see it in the numbers that we're seeing it. Um, I, I have a friend who uh, who <laughs> he's gonna know I said this if he's listening, <laughs> but I have a friend who went to go see his lady after you know doing the social distancing thing for a really long time, and one of them actually had the Rona, and now they both have the Rona. Um, that was a, that was a very expensive booty call for him. <laughs> so he's hoping there's going to be a vaccine. I think a lot of people are. So this week we got news about Pfizer with what's being called a 90% effective vaccine. Pfizer announcing today its coronavirus vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19. The medical community applauding the news but saying we still have a ways to go. I was expecting a vaccine might be 70% effective uh, if we were lucky. So this is better than I was expecting. Um, it's still early in terms of production. There's gonna, it's going to take some time to get the vaccine out to the American people, but this is clearly a positive step forward. Now, some interesting politics happened um, around, around the news. Of course, the establishment and businesses, they love the news, of course. All right, and the Dow is set to open about 15 seconds from now. It is expected to surge on positive coronavirus vaccine news. You can watch the big board as it opens this morning. We'll bring in Maria Bartiromo on this news. We don't need to. I, I, I think you get it. Businesses love the news. Um, and it's also an opportunity for Pfizer to get in on, on with the new boss to play politics. In fact, they threw the old sugar daddy under the bus 
and uh, Sager from the Hill gets into it and kind of explains the situation and the game that Pfizer is playing, starting with a Mike Pence tweet. Thanks to the public-private partnership forged by President Trump, Pfizer announces coronavirus vaccine trial is effective, preventing infection in 90% of its volunteers. Now, now that's um, Pence's tweet. What happens next is incredible. The Pfizer CEO trying to basically politicize his own vaccine and cozy up to the Joe Biden incoming administration says that it did not join the administration's partnership and that their head of vaccine development says we were never part of Operation Warp Speed. We've never taken any money from the U.S. government or anyone. So if you saw all those news stories take off in the last few days about uh, Pfizer wasn't part of uh, Trump's Warp Speed program. Pfizer wasn't part of Warp Speed. If you saw all those headlines and and something something seemed off, something seemed suspicious to you, well, good job, my friend. Your radar is finely tuned. Indeed, there is a huge caveat to the story. And essentially what it was is the media was repeating Pfizer's propaganda just so that way they could own Trump. In any way possible, any opportunity to orange man bad, they'll go for it. Sagar continues to explain. Because here's actually what happened. Pfizer received, the, yes, they did not receive development money, but they have a guarantee by the U.S. government to purchase $2 billion, which, you know, might help their bottom kind of, line. Kind of a big incentive. Kind there. of a little bit of incentive. Oh, and also Operation Warp Speed greenlit all of their R&D regulatory environment. So basically, this is a story of a public-private partnership. And it's amazing to me because basically what happened here is the media immediately latched on to a pharma talking point, which we know so well here, which is that they create these drugs in the abstract yeah. with no government great help risk or incentive. Themselves. Right. A great. No. Are you kidding me? The German government and the U.S. government are the ones who made this vaccine possible. And that's a good thing. I'm happy about it. But this is just an overall mainstream media just repeating, being gaslit into basically repeating Big pharma talking points, all just to own Trump. Why can't it just be a good story? Yeah, Pfizer has this cool vaccine. And it was developed with public funds and with public assurances. And all Americans are going to get it for free. And that's a goddamn good thing. Can we just leave it at that? <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself, Sagar. Uh, you should check out The Hill's YouTube channel. They're part of one of the many sources that I monitor. And something else that they did this week that I, I respect a lot is uh, Sagar went through his what he got right and wrong about the election and owned his mistakes and and owned following the polls too closely, which was my primary complaint watching their coverage of the election. So I thought I respected that and I like to see that in media coverage. So made me think about two, uh, you know, going back over history and and thinking about what did we call wrong? But um, not to brag, but I think so far we've had a pretty good run rate here. I mean, pretty consistently, although you can politely point out where I'm wrong if you'd like in the Discord, and I'll, I'll try to go correct it. But um, really, in practical terms, we have a bigger challenge when it comes to Pfizer's vaccine. And that's going to actually be the operational aspect of deploying this vaccine. 
Hey, Allison, good day. So imagine how big of a challenge this is. Every single American in the country spread out coast to coast, corner to corner, who wants a vaccine needs to get two shots within three weeks. And they have to rush these shipments to these diverse corners of the country in a very, very tight timeline. But the people in charge of this insist they're up for the job. It's a massive logistical challenge. How to move hundreds of millions of doses of a COVID vaccine to Americans across the country. Pfizer's vaccine must be kept at 70 degrees below zero Celsius. While it waits to submit the vaccine for emergency FDA approval next week, the company is already setting up a deep cold storage supply chain using suitcase sized cooling boxes to ship critical supplies to doctors and hospitals nationwide, possibly by Later this month. Once they take it out of the ice, they can keep it five days in the normal fridge. So we have worked extensively to develop this distribution network. As part of Operation Warp Speed, the military is working with drug makers like Pfizer to coordinate distribution. So once you say execute, how fast does it get out there? Within 24 hours, do you have? Doses of vaccine already stockpiled? Yes, we do. Pfizer says it will ship doses from its facilities in Michigan and Wisconsin. With each person needing two shots, the company expects to have enough for 25 million people worldwide this year. Two shots, three weeks apart. Another 650 million next year. In North Dakota, where they are suffering through the nation's worst COVID death rate, health officials are already working on getting the vaccine to remote corners of the state. We did identify locations throughout the state that have ultra cold chain storage capacity. A U.S. advisory panel has already laid out who could get priority in receiving a vaccine, starting with frontline doctors, nurses, first responders, and nursing home workers, then people of all ages with two or more risk factors. The next phase would include teachers, school staff, child care workers, and people working in the food supply chain. Phase three would include children and young adults, 30 and young Phase four would include everyone else living in the U.S. One other note, we mentioned these special small containers that they are using to super cool uh, the vaccines when they ship them. Uh, they can only open these containers for one minute twice a day. That's it. If it goes any longer than that, they run the risk of some of these vaccine doses going bad. And the vials themselves are now being specially created by Corning, the glassmaker, because typically uh, vials will crack in that kind of extreme cold. So yet another layer of complication to all of this. Allison? It's pretty intense, huh? <laughs> uh, and it seems that the people in the trials have reported the sensation of an extremely bad hangover, a really bad hangover um, for for a day or so. And like the kind of hangover where you hope this this wild ride ends real damn soon. But then afterwards, they did test positive for antibodies. So I have links for information in the show notes if you're curious about that. The news of a promising vaccine is is also coming kind of at a grim time for COVID. Um, we don't need to dwell on it much, but... Uh, I had to play this for you, both because because the news is important, especially as this is documenting where we're at in all of this, but also because of the bizarre presentation of it. The state of Texas is now being called the new epicenter. It was the first state to surpass one million cases. And just yesterday. Isn't it funny because the last clip, which, by the way, all of these are super fresh, right? These not like been sitting around for a while. The last clip used 
North Dakota as the epicenter, but said it was due to death rate. So they, they're kind of using different goalposts for different reports. So in each report, different places can be like the worst. So North Dakota is the worst. Texas is the worst. It's all just real bad guys. OK, the state of Texas is now being called the new epicenter. It was the first state to surpass one million cases. And just yesterday, it broke its single day record with nearly 11,000 cases statewide. Morgan Chesky is in El Paso, a city that is running out of morgue space. Morgan, I need to say that one more time for our audience, because we've heard from our president and others, we're turning a corner. This thing is just the flu. It's just more testing. That's why there's more positives. El Paso, Texas is running out of space to put dead bodies in their morgues. Is she, is she, I mean, what is her tone there? It's so weird. Also, did you notice that she said Rona? It's just more testing. That's why there's more positives. El Paso, Texas is Rona. Rona. (laughs) You know, they're calling it Rona behind the scenes. I think that's what just slipped out there. Now, the new CDC uh, report, not the new, not the new CDC, but their report (laughs) positions the agency in line with the new boss. And, and really, I think probably common thinking on mass. As COVID-19 cases rise around the country, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a new report yesterday outlining the effectiveness of masks, stating that wearing a mask not only protects others from the spread of COVID-19, but it also protects the wearer. The CDC added that adopting universal masking policies can help avert future lockdowns, especially when paired with daily practices like like social distancing and hand washing. The report estimated more than 50 percent of COVID-19 transmissions originate from asymptomatic people, making mask wearing even more critical. Oh, did you get the message? I get a sense this isn't going away for a very long time. I mean, at least I mean, I, I think maybe our best case, it would be right now, 2021 especially if the vaccine comes along in the spring and it gets pretty well deployed. But I wonder if they ever truly go away. I don't like the social distancing. I don't mind it. Part of me is kind of glad because it reduces some awkward social interactions that I just prefer not to have when I'm out in public. Humans. But it's also cold. And I think humans need connection. And I think for neighborhoods and communities to be healthy, they need to have relationships and connections with each other. And when they distance each other, like when we're in our cars, we objectify them. They, we, we experience road rage. We, we don't really think of them as another person. We, we are not really well wired for that. And that's why online communication is just not as rich as in-person communication. So I, I don't want that to really become the new norm. I, I could, I could kind of get on board, and I've actually said this years ago on the show. Years ago, I said, I wouldn't mind if people wore masks like they do in Asia when they're sick, so that way I don't get sick. As I I, I own and operate a small business, and if I'm taken out, um, it has serious consequences on my business. And it's something I really struggled with when my kids were young, when they were first going into elementary school, and probably... <laughs> Any other parents that have their kids in public school probably know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, the first few years, your kids are germ factories. They're just bringing back all kinds of stuff and it just ravages the family. So you get, you know, a couple of colds, maybe if you're lucky a year, maybe more. Maybe you're sick for the entire winter. So it's only been the last year or two 
really, now that my kids are getting older, that that doesn't happen to me. And so, you know, during that time when I was getting sick on the regular and having to either work sick or, and, you know, for me, like head colds and stuff like that and chest colds, they, they literally affect my performance. So I was kind of always on the, uh, maybe we, when we're sick, we should wear masks, <laughs> but wait, I mean, wear a mask. It does the job, right? I'm not, I'm not so on board with this bullshit scarf stuff that people are claiming are a mask. It's really just a, a thin piece of cloth. Uh, give me a break. That's not doing anything for anybody. I mean, I'm talking, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Same with the damn lockdowns. If you're going to do the damn lockdowns, do them right. If you're going to do the damn mask, do it right. And I, I like, I mean, I think they got to figure it out. In, in the Asian nations where when they're not feeling well, they put on the mask or if they're a particular vulnerable individual, they put on the mask. I don't think it would be the end of the world if that stuck around, but I think it would be better if it was elective, if it was culturally elective um, and not sort of forced upon us. I think if you had cultural adoption, if we could have gone about this in a way that where we didn't have a constantly shifting message from the CDC, I mean, can you believe this? Here we are in November. We're getting, we're still getting different changing messages from the CDC on something as basic as mask wearing. Let that sink in for a second. The world-renowned CDC, my arse. What a joke. So it's it's too late. We blew the mask thing. We blew the lockdowns. Now we're blowing up the economy. <laughs> oh boy, I'm in a cranky mood, I guess. But the reality is, I guess I kind of feel like. I still feel like we're going to figure it out. Um, we have a lot of, we do still, we do still have a lot of good things going for us. Um, and in a way we've needed to have, we needed to shift some of these things. Uh, maybe, maybe we don't have to shake hands every damn time. Maybe it is better that people who can work from home, work from home a couple of days a week on the regular. Maybe that's better for everybody. Maybe there's a few things that we come out of this that are for the better. So I don't mean to focus on the negative, but I want to provide some counter narrative to the lockdowns and everything that's going on. Just even if it just makes you consider something else or if you agree, either way, I, I just want us to have that conversation. Um, and I think I think all of this stuff, all of this uncertainty, to be honest with you, is in part why the Biden administration is trying to project confidence around this. An old theater house is HQ for the new president-elect and his transition team. Get used to the motorcade. This, I want to be clear here, is really no different than Trump taking uh, the roids and the super uh, stem cell cocktail and then walking the steps and taking off his mask and saluting the helicopter. This is a different form of a tough guy persona. This, this is projecting a type of confidence. This is projecting a type of theater, exactly like Trump was doing. Trump's again, like I said earlier, was was not as refined. He's not a political mastermind. The people that are working with Biden, they have the optics figured out. They, it's Well, it's, 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 it's Obama's team. So, of course, right? It's the best from Obama and Clinton's team that are working on this stuff. And they figured out how to project a, a type of strength in a way that is more palatable to the American people and their media lapdogs. For the new president-elect and his transition team, get used to the motorcade. Joe Biden's priority his first week trying to take the politics out of the pandemic. Good afternoon, everyone. It doesn't matter who you voted for. We are Americans and our country is under threat. 
The bottom line. The vaccine is promising, he says, but many months away. As cases in the U.S. climbed above 10 million today, nearly 1,000 a day are dying. And unlike Trump, Biden warned the coming winter looks dark. The projections still indicate we could lose 200,000 more lives in the coming months before a vaccine can be made widely available. Biden is blunt. Wear a mask, everyone, no matter their politics. I want to be very clear. The goal of mask wearing is not to make your life less comfortable. It's to take something or take something away from you. It's to give. It says this is actually a pretty good message, but he blew it there. Sort of like when he said they had the most extensive voter fraud network. He, he kind of blows it and says the opposite thing, which makes you think maybe it is actually the truth. He says it's, it is to take something away from you, but he meant the opposite. And then he quickly corrects it. If you excuse that, I think his message, it's a good attempt. It's to take something or take something away from you. It's to give something back to all of us, a normal life. With Biden. I, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not the greatest, right? But he's, it's uh, fast moving. It's fast moving these days. But uh, if the transition was so rocky, they wouldn't have time to do that kind of stuff. That's what I say. I just want to take a brief moment and say this show is powered by its audience. Nobody is sponsoring this thing. Come on. Let's be honest. Let's be real. Come on. Come on. Patreon.com slash unfilter. If you would, go over there and support the show. We're considering upping it a little bit because I'll tell you what. This show is a hell of a lot of work. And some weeks I think, Chris, what the hell are you doing? And then other weeks, I see a new patron subscription come in on the email, and I think, I'm doing it for the people. And it feels pretty damn good when I see new patrons sign up. All right, let's restart the show. we got one more big story to get into this week. We may need some faith healers. <laughs> the Supreme Court and the Affordable Care Act. Now, I've got to get up on my soapbox again and say, damn it, this whole thing has been a shit show, and I warned you from the beginning. So just in time for the election, the media started freaking people out about losing their health care, their health care and Obamacare being struck down in the middle of a pandemic. And this message ran over and over and over again. And of course, it was hit on by every single Democrat running for office. Today, the Trump administration and 18 Republican-led states argued in front of the Supreme Court that Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, should be struck down in its entirety. This case comes as the pandemic continues to accelerate and without any clear alternative for the people covered under that law, the millions of Americans who would lose their insurance if that law is overturned. Yeah, really hitting all the points there, isn't he? You know, it's funny, if you look at the population of the United States and you look at how many people are covered by Obamacare, not so great. Um, I've, I don't know. I'm pretty bitter about it because when I look at what I could pay, it's going to cost me, especially, um, you know, if I want something good, almost two grand a month because I am self-employed. It's absolutely ludicrous. So I want you to kind of appreciate, imagine that two grand a month. And I don't go to the doctor very often. Um, usually I have to be dying because I work my damn ass off. I don't have time to go to the doctor. <laughs> and I know that's not a good thing. and I'm not proud of that. I'm not bragging. It's simply a fault of myself. It's something I've tried to get better at. But now that I'm self-employed again, to be honest, it had to go out the window. I can't afford health insurance. I wouldn't be able to do this. So I am without health insurance as I record this once again. 
And I, I hate it that my health insurance is essentially tied to employ, employment ship. And then to really rub my face in the dog shit on the floor, I have to pay a fine for the privilege of not having health insurance so that way I can subsidize a system that is essentially guaranteed income for insurance companies. And I, I, I think there is legitimacy around asking about the constitutional validity of the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act. As somebody who feels like he is getting screwed because I don't get health care and I get fined and I can't pay either, it really is a massive problem for me. So when I saw our new super VP remind us on how evil Republicans are for taking the ACA to court, I felt compelled to talk about this. Getting rid of the Affordable Care Act will take us backward. Getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. That's like ultimate stakes. To a time when... People could charge a woman more for her health care. Ah, playing the charge a woman more card. Also a really spicy one. Then they could charge a man simply because she's a woman. She has a condescending smile as she says it, too, which is a nice little touch. To a time when pregnancy could be considered a pre-existing condition. It will take away free birth control and contraceptive coverage for women. What? This is all happening at a moment when our country is suffering through a pandemic that has claimed more than 238,000 lives. Oh, there we go. Another another brilliantly refined talking point. And then after uh, the introduction by the leader of the free world, uh, Joe Biden came up on stage and he urged fake unity while trying to scare average Americans at the same time. It's one of his moves. 79% of the American people, including 9 out of 10 Democrats, 8 out of 10 independents, and two-thirds of Republicans, want to keep the ACA protections for people with pre-existing conditions, which would be eliminated if this lawsuit were to succeed. Oh? This doesn't need to be a partisan issue. It's a human issue. This doesn't need to be an issue. This doesn't need to be an issue. They could have passed an amendment to this act to just remove the individual mandate in Congress, and then this entire case would have been invalid, and the ACA would never have been at risk. The human issue, it affects every single American family. We can't subvert the growing consensus of the American people based on an argument put forward in the briefs seeking to invalidate the law that even many conservative legal scholars, including in the National Review, consider to be, quote, ridiculous. They are. That's why we shouldn't even be worrying about it. They are ridiculous. Because, again, I go back to the Trump team's incompetence. When they go to court, they are incompetent. What's always been at stake is not the entire thing. That's not what was going to happen when it went to the Supreme Court. What's been at stake is what is the debate around removing the individual mandate And how does that hold up with the rest of the law? And does the doctrine of severability apply? And if so, how does it? There's this issue called the doctrine of severability. And basically it means that if you take out one card from the House of Cards, does the whole house collapse? Or uh, can you presume as a judge that the rest of the law, the rest of the cards should stay in place? And that was a key issue, especially for conservative justice Brett Kavanaugh. Now, who knows what's going to happen? This isn't a ruling yet, but Brett Kavanaugh did pretty did send a pretty clear signal that they were going to take the scalpel approach, as it's known, and not the bulldozer approach to the Affordable Care Act. I tend to agree with you on this is a very straightforward case for severability under our precedents, meaning that we would 
excise the mandate and leave the rest of the act in place, uh, reading our severability precedents. And then, like I've been telling you, he went on to say this entire thing could have been solved by Congress and should have been. The big question today was, even if the court thinks that that individual mandate is now unconstitutional because there's no tax to save it, as the Supreme Court saved it the first time in 2012, even if that's the case, does the rest of the law stand? And what he said is the test is always, what did Congress want? And he said, if you look at what Congress did in 2017, it took the tax out, but it left the rest of the law intact. So he thinks that's pretty good evidence that Congress did not want the whole law to collapse. Yeah, he cited precedent, an example of what Congress has done before, and signaled likely what's to happen. And even kind of questioned why the Trump administration tried this when they knew that precedent existed. <laughs> it, so not only could the Democrats have solved this all along with their own change, but it seemed pretty clear as of even like July, really, it, well, there, was a pretty, there were pretty clear signals, I got links in the show notes, how the Supreme Court was going to rule on this. And I honestly think that the Affordable Care Act is at a point now where it should be able to survive on its own without the individual mandate. I know that's a debatable, but I don't think it necessarily means blowing the whole thing up. And it feels like the best compromise possible, to be honest with you. Otherwise, it'll continue to be a war infinitum this may actually give us some kind of resolution. I don't know for sure. We'll see. So be patient. Be realistic. Things are in the works. But the ACA is going to be okay. Trump will concede, but not anytime soon. He needs to show his base he's fighting for this. And the Trump supporters, they need to see this process work out, don't they? They need to... They need to have some reassurance that there is a legal process and that these elections can be audited and, and validated. There's a lot of people out there that think this thing was rigged, and I think they need this, and I think it's gracious to let them have it. So we'll keep an eye on it, see where this thing goes, and call it as it lands. That's The Unfilter Show, the people's history. Thanks for joining me on this week's episode of The Unfilter Podcast. Please do get in touch, unfilter.show slash contact, patreon.com slash unfilter to support, and show notes and links at unfilter.show slash 337. See you next week. 